in the sound booth. We kind of have a lot of extra scripture this morning. Uh, if you can't keep up, that's okay. I just figured you might want to get out sometime this afternoon for lunch. So uh, I will go a little bit faster through some of those. Um, but kind of keep up if you can. If not, they'll be on the overhead for you. But as we left Acts chapter 4, we observed an incredible picture of the body of Christ. A church family that sacrificially met the needs of one another. Some folks even went to the extent of selling their land, their property, to help meet the needs of others in the church body. Amongst this group of believers were a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And notice what takes place in the story. So if you would, follow along as I begin reading verses 1 through 11, chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. There was an interval of about three hours. Then his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the field for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to, the te to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. Dear Heavenly Father, God, once again, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts this day. Lord, that we would truly understand whatever it is that you want for us to understand from this passage of Scripture. Lord, help us not to read into it and make extra biblical principles out of it. But yet, Lord, may we learn what you have for us to learn, that we may apply it to our hearts and our lives, that we may walk in obedience and in fellowship with you, Lord. So, Lord, as we prayed earlier, would you help us to concentrate on what you have for us this day? And, God, would you help us to set aside the cares and the concerns of things that may be happening later in the day, Lord, so that we may get what you have for us to get? And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, to some people, the story may seem like God is very harsh, like God is mean, God is cruel. Uh, maybe it's a host of other thoughts. I mean, isn't God supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, a God of love, a God of kindness, a God of patience, a God of forgiveness? I mean, what kind of God would take the life of somebody for, you know, lying, so to speak? What kind of God do we serve? I mean, after all, why isn't God a bit more appreciative of what was given than worrying about what wasn't given? You know, I don't know about you, but these and other thoughts came to my mind as I was re reading the story throughout this week as well. 
I come across the quote by Pastor Mark Verbruggen, who made this statement. Lest we begin to think that God is safe, that we can treat Him less than what He has revealed Himself to be, we are once again shown that He is not safe. He is holy and He is good, but He will not be trifled with. This God will not be mocked. As I was reading through that statement, I thought to myself, that's very true. We live in a world where we take so many things so flippantly that we really don't think about, wow, what kind of repercussions might my actions have? What kind of outcome will this choice have on my life or the life of my family members? But I like this statement. Unless we begin to think that God is safe, wow, that's really a thought-provoking statement. That we can treat him less than what he has revealed himself to be. We are once again shown that he is not safe. He is holy and he is good. But he will not be trifled with. God will not be mocked. Now remember in Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. And throughout other places of scripture where God revealed what he is capable of doing. But oftentimes what we don't think he will do. In Joshua chapter 7 verse 1 he says the Israelites however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. You say, well, why did God do what he did? I mean, God allowed the battle not to be won, and his whole family was affected by one man's sin. And God's vengeance, or God's anger, was satisfied in the death of Achan. You'll say, well, what kind of a God would do that? A God who is jealous for his own glory. A God who is jealous that his people follow him out of a heart of love and a heart of obedience. A God who is jealous for fellowship with his people. We have forgotten just how great and powerful God really is. How often do we think about, when I do this, I wonder how it affects the heart of God. When I take his name in vain when I take shortcuts, and when I don't spend time in fellowship with him, and I don't pray, and I don't read his word, and I rarely open my mouth in sharing the gospel. I wonder how these things affect the heart of God. And he's obviously up there sometimes in, his life, or in, the, in, in our lives and saying, I wonder, is he truly a Christ follower? I mean, I mean, does he really want to be close to me? Do they really want to walk in obedience? And in our minds, it's not that big a deal. I mean, okay, so I didn't get to... You know, I didn't, I didn't get much time in the Word this week. No big deal. It is a big deal to God. It is a big deal that we walk in fellowship and obedience to Him. But we have forgotten just how great and how powerful God really is. And I think we have failed to see just how gracious He is as well. I mean, think about it. In Psalm chapter 103, verses 13 and 14, He says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him, for He knows what we are made of, remembering that we are but dust. God is gracious to us. If we all got what we truly deserve, none of us would be heaven-bound if we got what we deserved. All of us would face a harsh punishment from a just God if we got what we deserved. Not only that, 
In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and following, he says, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says what he wants us to do is to live a life that is in accordance to the obedience of walking with God. Instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lusts and to live insensible and righteous in our present age. And every generation has the things that we're going to struggle with. It may be different in this generation than it was in some of your generations, but every generation struggles with walking in obedience. There are so many cultural impacting uh, factors in our lives. And every day is a choice. Am I going to give into the flesh or am I going to live according to the Spirit? And then he goes on to say this. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. You see, our life is not supposed to be wrapped around to being ourselves and what we want to do and where we want to go and however often we want to do those things. Life is supposed to be all about him and doing what he wants us to do and living to please him. He said, I created you to be my possession, to be eager to do good works. But I wonder how often that we get selfish, self-centered. We say, well, I don't have time to do these things this week. I don't have time to be involved in what God has for me to be involved with. No big deal. Someone else will do it. And we forget how powerful God is. And we fail to remember how gracious he is and long-suffering and patient and kind. Pastor Jerry Shirley made this statement. He says, no wonder old churches put their cemeteries so close. I was thinking about that the other day. Back in Indiana, where we lived for 15 years, uh, especially in the rural parts of Indiana, if you've ever just taken a drive out in the country, you come across a lot of old churches. And almost every one of them have a cemetery right outside the back door of the church. Got to thinking. I wonder if there's any correlation between this story and the closeness of the cemeteries to the church door. Just kidding. But you wonder sometimes, do we really take it serious that God wants our commitment to him? Out of a heart of desire, I just want to live for my God. I want that relationship with Him. I want to please Him. Because His life is not about me. As I, as we, think about this story, the question of why God chose to deal with Ananias and Sapphira's sin with a punishment of death certainly comes to mind. I'm even a bit troubled or uncomfortable with God's choice of punishment. Maybe you are too. Here's why. Number one, maybe it's because I don't have the same view or concept of righteousness or holiness that God has. And that's troubling. Because if I don't view sin as God views sin, that's a problem. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? If I don't view sin as God views sin, then I can say I can live life however I want because, well, that's just his opinion and I have mine. So be it. And then there's no moral absolute. There's no biblical absolute of how God wants me to live. That's troubling. 
I think maybe I don't like what God did because I don't have the same concept of sin that he has. I don't have the same view of righteousness that he has. Maybe it's because as I think about the story, I'm reminded that God, if he so choose, could exercise the same punishment on me for my sin. I mean, if he did it to Ananias and Sapphira, what would hold him withhold him from doing that same thing to me if I'm living in sin? You ever thought about that? I have. Not just before reading the story, but I can remember growing up thinking, I am not going to do anything on purpose because I don't want to get punished for it. And you live life out of fear of being punished rather than out of a heart of love and joy and excitement to be alive. I really literally had the concept growing up as a kid in a Christian school, listening to chapel three, four days a week, that God was you know, this big, mighty monster in the sky, has a big, huge thumb, and just wait, go ahead, go ahead, mess up. I, I lived like that for a lot of years, thinking that God is just there, just waiting for me to do something wrong. <clears throat> Told you. Then you begin to realize that God is not like that. He could be. But God is so just that whatever form of punishment or discipline that he chooses for us is right and best for us. Whether we like it or agree with it or not. Maybe it's because God's choice of punishment goes against my idea of what God should have done. Like, why couldn't you be a little bit more patient? Why couldn't you just be a little bit more forgiving? I mean... Come on, guys. Husband and wife relationships. Guys, you mess up, and you just say, I'm sorry, and just kind of like wash it under the rug, and just, it's all good. And go. Why, 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 why can't you just forgive? And the wives are thinking, why can't you just like change with your actions and not your words? Right? Nothing from the peanut gallery. Um, see, it's easy to say I'm sorry. It's not so easy sometimes to change with your life. And your actions. As we often say, your walk walks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Actions speak louder than words, don't they? And maybe I'm uncomfortable with God's choice of punishment because, well, maybe I just like the forgiveness side a little bit better than I do the death side. Maybe you're like me. But here's the truth, though. Every day, God does exercise grace in our lives. Every day far beyond our comprehension and everything he does choose to do is just whether we like it or not so why did God choose death ultimately only God knows but he is justified with whatever means of punishment he chooses and I believe however that what we observe several sins that we do observe several sins committed by Ananias and Sapphira so first, let me remind you what their sin was not. It was not in the fact that they did not give everything they made to Peter from the sale of their property. It had nothing to do with it. Peter reminded them, hey, before you sold it, it was yours. After you sold it and you made some money, it was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. It wasn't the fact that he would say, well, pastor, well, did God punish them because they didn't give everything? No, it had nothing to do with it. God never told them or commanded them to give everything. Some did, but God never commanded it. 
So it wasn't that. Nowhere in the context of the story where Ananias and Sapphira commanded to give all the proceeds to God. They had every right to keep all they wanted. Isn't that amazing? They didn't have to lie about it. So what did they do wrong? Well, I think they see at least three things here in the story that they did wrong. That maybe we can learn from this morning. Number one, they exercise greed. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, they purposed in their heart to hold back a portion. Whatever the amount was, whatever the circumstance was that they received, obviously Ananias and Sapphira conspired with each other. They developed a story, and they stuck to it regardless. And then Ananias goes and gives the money and gives an implication that, hey, this is the money from the land. But the first thing they did is that they exercised greed. I mean, they, they decide that they're going to keep a portion of it, but imply that we're giving more. And God's word really speaks a lot about greed. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Therefore put to death but what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Hey, Sapphira, why don't we keep back a portion of this, and then we can maybe do this or do that or buy this or buy that. And nobody else would be the wiser, but we're just going to keep this. What happens at that point? According to God's word in Colossians, it's greed. And greed turns to idolatry. I'm going to put my focus on this rather than the heart of the issue over here in this. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says, He then told them, Watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. It's not about how much you have when it all comes down to it. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. I want to be a multi-gazillionaire. Don't lie. Thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't mind trying it. I think it'd be kind of fun, actually. But when really one comes down to it, nobody's going to take a hearse to the cemetery with all their goods and bury them together. You're not going to take anything with you to heaven. So life is not in the abundance of possessions. And what we learn from 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. There's a show on cable uh, I've watched a couple of times, How the Lottery Changed My Life. Anybody ever seen that? You think, wow, they won a lottery. Wow. And you think, man, they got 27 cars and you know a $12 million mansion and every lost relative that they ever knew or didn't know existed knocking on their door. But here's what I find interesting in 85% of all of them is that by the end of the story, and what you don't always hear, is that most of them end up broke as they were before they won the money. I don't know if you knew that. Very few are wise enough, disciplined enough to actually invest it to actually make something of it, to use it wisely. Because you have to realize that at some point that $12 million for that mansion still has property tax long after the millions are gone. You end up selling the house because you can't pay the taxes on it. And one by one you lose the 27 cars because, well, you can't only drive a couple at a time anyway, and I need the money, so let's let this one go, and then this one, then this one. And then I help, you know, my sister's brother or my sister's, 
you know, children because they had some struggles. Gone. How the lottery changed your life. I think First Timothy 6.10 really, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You see, the money is, in and of itself is not bad. It's your attitude towards it. You've heard me say before, it's amazing when God's people get a hold of the concept of things, materialism, possessions, money. I wonder what I should do with my money. I wonder what God wants me to do with my money. I wonder what God wants me to do with his money. See the progression? If the view is as mine, I can do whatever I want with it. And the second step is a little bit better. I wonder what God wants me to do with my money, but it still says it's mine. But I'm going to kind of get some advice from God what I should do with it. But then you get to that third point. Everything I have is his. Everything. My car, my house, my job, my family, everything is his. And I'm just the steward of it. I get to take care of it. And I better be careful how I take care of it. Because it's his. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, it says, The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. For whatever reasons that only Ananias and Sapphira know, they chose to be greedy about what they got. They didn't have to give anything. They didn't have to give it all. But they chose to exercise greed in the process. That's one thing that we notice. A second sin that I think is there is that they exercised lying. They planned this story beforehand. They conferred amongst themselves. They developed this story, and this is what we're going to do. They lied. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Have we come to the realization yet that there is nothing hidden from God's eyes? Where we go, what we do, what we're looking at, what we're listening to, what we're reading, what we're surfing on the web... Everything is in clear eye shot of God. Nothing's hidden. You say, well, that's ultimate accountability. Yes, it is. But you know, when you're not doing anything wrong, you have nothing to fear. In that case, it's ultimate encouragement. My God is with me. But no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart, and then praise will come to each one from God. God says, look, there's going to be a day when God is going to praise you if you are walking right. That's what it says. And praise will come to each one from God. But... He says he's going to expose the intentions of the heart. What is the motive behind what you do? 
Why did they lie? I don't know. They didn't have to, but they chose to. And in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, towards the end of that verse, it says, Be sure your sin will catch up with you. How often has, have we observed someone lying, and they have to create another lie to cover that lie, and then one more lie to cover that lie to co- that covered that lie, and it's just a vicious cycle. We've all seen it. We all know people who have that reputation of being liars. But according to Numbers 32, it's going to eventually catch up to you. It's better just to walk right. And then number three, I think there's a third sin that we see, and they kind of work hand in hand, and it's pride and hypocrisy. You know, I can only imagine, and this is, I'm going to hypothesize a little bit, but I can only imagine that in the story that took place at the end of Acts chapter 4, there were those who were selling their lands and giving the money at the, laying at the apostles' feet. And the apostles would, with wisdom, I believe, disperse to those who had needs so that everybody's needs were covered. And we looked at what those needs might have looked like, looked like according to Scripture. Food and clothing, let us be with content. So those who needed food, those who needed clothing, those who needed the basic necessities of life, those funds went to help cover those needs within the body of Christ, within that church family. I can only imagine, as I say my hypothesis is this, is that I'm sure for some that was probably quite the deal. Man, so-and-so sold his land? Wow. And everybody's like, oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate you doing that. That's so wonderful. That's great. Thanks for listening to God and doing that. And they're getting praised to some extent. Remember Barnabas was one such guy? Barnabas didn't do it for the accolades of man. He didn't do it because somebody was saying, hey, attaboy, there you go. Go for it. For whatever reason, Barnabas, you know, I kind of look at it this way. Maybe you don't view it this way, but, you know, Barnabas wasn't home a lot. He might have been thinking, you know, I don't really need this land. I'm doing missionary journeys, and I'm, I'm going from this place to this place and spreading the gospel and trying to be a blessing to God's people and trying to see other people come into the family of God. I just don't even need this land. I'm just going to sell it and let, let, let the apostles take care of it. I'm not home that much anyway. Maybe, maybe that's not the case. I don't know. But then Ananias and Sapphira, they look at it and say, well, we got land. We could, we could get some of this praise too. Maybe, maybe we can kind of get an attaboy. Maybe people start looking at us a little bit differently. A little bit of clout in the community because look what we just did. I can imagine. But there's talk of everything that's taken place. Maybe they wanted others to think they had given all. Really, when you look at this, go back to the text here in Acts chapter 5. It says, however, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, and as why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now let me just say what this is not saying. It's not saying Peter... I mean, Peter's not saying the devil didn't make, you know, devil made you do it. That, that's not the case here. Devil didn't make Ananias do anything. All Satan did was lay a trap and he walked through it. Hey, Ananias, I got this idea. Give a portion, make it look like you gave everything. Still got some back for that good day. Everybody be looking at you and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
But he says, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? Because in his pride and in his hypocrisy, he wanted it to make it, make it look like I was giving all of it rather than just a portion of it. The sin was not that he held it back. The sin is that he lied about what he gave. So what's the big deal about pride? Well, Isaiah 2.12 says, For a day belonging to the Lord of hosts is coming against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it will be humbled. You see, you're gonna, if you're going to walk in pride, God has a way of humbling you. James 4.6, But he gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God would have taken care of him. Even if he were to give it all, God would have taken care of him. Was he not part of the church family that, he, that God's word tells us that no one had need of? Of course he was. God would have taken care of him. Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Proverbs 16.18, Pride comes before destruction, and an arrogant spirit before a fall. See, pride will do nothing but take you down. And God's word reminds us. In fact, Matthew 6, 1, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. God's word reminds us that we shouldn't tell everybody what we're doing. Hey, by the way, so-and-so was struggling. I gave him 500 bucks. I mean, who else was going to? You got your reward. Letting everybody know what you just did. God's not going to reward that. Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9 says, Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of man. He says, Hypocrites. With your lips, you're saying one thing, but with your heart, not buying it, he says. But there are th clearly three sins that they practice. They practice greed, they practice lying, they practice pride and hypocrisy. It wasn't about the gift or how much he gave. It was about their heart and where their heart was as they stood before God. And I'm thankful once again that God does exercise grace. In this particular story, God's judgment was not only just, but it was swift. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't always judge us for our sins in the same way? I think you've heard me say before that Vance Havner, an old country preacher, said, if God judged sin today the way he did in the days of Ananias and Fire, every church would need a morgue in its basement. I'm thankful that God is patient. I'm thankful that God is long-suffering. I'm thankful that God is kind and forgiving. I'm thankful that God doesn't always judge me for my sin the way he chose to justly judge Ananias and Sapphira. But I know that he could. And if he did, it'd be perfectly right and just for him to do it if he so chose to do it. Who am I? Right? You believe that? Who, who, who am I? 
Who are you? To dictate how a holy, righteous, just God disciplines his children. He's God. And I think in the long run, God must be glorified. In the bigger picture, God must be glorified. 1 Peter 4.11 says, If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. He deserves the glory alone. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be applauded by people, I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So how do we come clean? Say, Pastor, my motives haven't been right. Maybe people do know what I do because I kind of like do it either, either grudgingly or, or I don't do it in the right spirit. My motives aren't right. How do I come clean? Well, first of all, you need to confess your sin. 1 John 1, 9 reminds us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's forgiveness is available, but you must confess it. It's conditional. You confess it, God forgives it. But it is so hard for some people to confess. You ever notice that? I mean, you got a four-year-old kid who has just hit, hit his sister or hit his baby brother or whatever, and tell him you're sorry. No! And let me just say, confession is, is more than just saying I'm sorry, but go ahead and tell him you're sorry. No! Anybody ever dealt with that before? Yep. But it's amazing how some of that grows into adulthood. I've met adults who will not give an inch. Maybe you're one of them. I don't know. I just can't. Because we want to rationalize. We want to justify. We want to excuse. I mean, we want a reason to give validation for our actions. I'm guilty. I'm telling you I am. And I think you are too. That's our sinful nature. He says, if you confess it, he'll forgive it. I think secondly, we need to humble ourselves. James 4, 6, 3 says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Why? He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways can't walk the fence forever, folks. Either in or out. But it's going to take a humbling of ourselves before God. A willingness to surrender my will to His, which we don't like to do. Anybody like authority in your life? Anybody enjoy going to work and your boss telling you what to do, even though he's pushing the pencil and you're on the line doing it? Because you know how it can be done better, but he's not telling you to do it the way you know is better. He's telling you to do it my way. Drives you insane, doesn't it? Everybody's nodding. You know what it means. I don't like authority. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. Maybe you're like me. We know better. And God is saying, humble yourself. 
Number three, deny yourself. Matthew 16, 23 and 24 says, But he turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I've had someone tell me before, God would never expect me to do that. Then you're following a God of your own making. Because my God says you have to deny yourself. Because once again, it's not about you. It's about him. And number four, last one. Die to self. Confess your sin, humble yourself, deny yourself, and then die to yourself. 1 Corinthians 15, 31 says, I affirm by the pride in you that I have in Christ Jesus my Lord, I die daily. He says, every day I've got to put to death my desire, my will, what I want to do, what pleases me to do what God wants me to do. That's not easy sometimes. We're selfish. And I say, we're all Selfish. Ask your children how selfish you are. Ask your spouse how selfish you are. They'll be honest. Trust me. It all comes down to the heart. And as Ananias and Sapphira stood before Peter and the apostles and laid this money there, we know that their heart was not right before God. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, it's not just a story about two people who lied to God and he just, boom, done, dead, get out of here. There's some things for us to learn here. It's that God wants a clean heart before him. And if it's not, be glad for God's grace and his mercy. Because if it were not for his mercy and his grace, we'd be like Ananias and Sapphira, honestly. I don't know where you're at. I know it's a convicting story to me. Because I'm thankful. It makes me more appreciative for God's patience. Confess your sin. Humble yourself. Deny yourself. And die to self. Make sure your heart is right before God. Let's pray.